Thank God today, and this is Pastor Adams, the president and the founder of the Truth Matters Ministries, and we're so thankful and we're so delighted. We're privileged today to be host and to be attendance of this ministry of standing as a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're just so delighted that you've taken time out of your day to listen in and to glean from the teachings within this Truth Matters podcast. And we're just so thankful and delightful that we have the opportunity to be attendants and custodians of this ministry. And before we get into our teaching and our continuation of our teaching in this podcast, we want to just stop and we want to pray. Father, we thank you that you are the author and the finisher of our faith today. You told us in your word that you were the first and you said that you were the last, the alpha and the omega. You called yourself the ancient of days. He that was here from everlasting to everlasting. We thank you, Lord God, that there's nothing that can take and transpire in our life that you're not aware of. You said you knew our thoughts are far off. You said that you knew us even as our bones were being formed in our mother's womb. We're so thankful today, God, that we know that you're so kind and you're so mindful of us. You said that every hair on our head was numbered. We thank you that you know our frame. Lord, even though tomorrow, we thank you today that we can stand in confidence as we walk by faith within this world, that you, God, hold our hand. Your word will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. We thank you that the Holy Spirit, that it gives us wisdom and direction, it leads us. And we thank you, Lord God, that you are the God who goes before us and you fight for us. You are our advocate. We thank you, Lord God, that you are our mediator. We give your name, praise, and glory for every person that's joined you. Bless every listener today. Let the Spirit go and actually permeate within all of those secret places, all of those special needs that people have. Lord, let the Spirit of God meet every need. Let every lie and every deceptive thought, let it be dissolved today. We thank you today, Lord God, that the Spirit of God, it gives us power over all the power of the wicked one. And you assured us that nothing shall by any means hurt us. We thank you today. You bless your word today. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. And in this we are thankful. And on this we stand. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. And as we go into our teaching today, I think it's so mindful to remember the words of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal said that today that truth is so obscure. And he said that falsehoods are so prevalent that unless you really love the truth, he says you can't even know the truth. True are the words of Mark Twain. He says that a lie will travel all around this whole world before truth can even get its boots on. And Patrick Fitzgerald, who was the lead prosecutor in the Scooter Libby trial, he said that truth is the engine. It's the foundation of our justice system. And if we don't have truth, he says, we don't have anything. That's why we put hands on Bibles and we also put hands in the air and we affirm in court proceedings to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What's the reason? Because truth matters in this hour. And as we've been continuing in our previous segments on the inerrancy of scripture, we're going to we, we're going to do a little reflection and recap. We talked about the bibliographical test for truth and all of how the words and how 
uh, the documents actually come to us and how they're transcribed and how they're copied and the reliability of the New Testament and the Old Testament in contrast to so many writings of antiquity. And then as we begin to discover in the internal evidence test, we begin to look at how the scriptures actually are brought to us through so many different mediums, how the word of God has been validated and has been confirmed even in the onslaught and even against so many attacks such as men such as Bart Ehrman and so many atheists and so many secular humanists and agnostics who would suggest that the Bible is unreliable and how it has variants and because it's evolved with languages and because there were real very minor non-relevant and non-consequential variants between the text they have said that we're going to throw out the baby with the bath water and we're going to proclaim that the word of God is not inerrant but today we're going to continue in our study on uh, the inerrancy of scripture we're going to talk about what does archaeology say about the Bible how does it lend its testimony as it confirms the reliability of holy scripture we're going to ex- examine many archaeological discoveries that have solidified and affirmed the Bible's amazing truths and accuracy we're going to just touch on 10 major archaeological discoveries in the past century that we think are significant for understanding the world of the Bible and for each find a narrative of its discovery and the crucial information it unlocks is going to be relayed in this podcast, plus its connection to key biblical events or references. The 10 discoveries that we're going to illustrate, they point that the new facts about the Bible, its word and its personalities come through very, very strong diligence in archaeological research. And we're going to talk about one of the most important ones that has happened within the 20th century, and it was called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm pretty sure you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what's so significant about it? Well, this initial discovery was was by chance in 1947, uh, and it was not by an archaeologist. It wasn't anyone who was digging in the ground, but some Bedouin boys, a little boy named Muhammad, and some of his friends, they found seven scrolls or parts of scrolls and fragments along with store jars and broken pottery jars in a cave overlooking the northwest end of the Dead Sea. Now, when they made the discovery, a person who was a dealer in artifacts, you know, when a dealer was acting on behalf of the shepherds, he sold the scrolls. They came to the attention of scholars in Jerusalem after they were sold, and then the scholarly world took notice of them. Subsequent investigations in the area of the Cave of Discovery ultimately led to the recovery of documents in a total of 11 caves and the excavation of a modest ruin nearby known as the Kerbet, or the Ruin of the Korum. All of this was occurring as the modern state of Israel was coming into existence, and you all know that go to my ear and uh, the, the very national state of Israel came into being in 1948. And as it was coming into being as a, a actual nation, all of this was going on. And with all the political upheaval involved in the development of this particular fine, as this century ends and a new one begins, efforts for a peaceful political settlement in the region continue and give signs of reaching fruition. In the meantime, scholars continue to study the multitude of fragments recovered in an attempt to assess the significance of them. Now I want you just to to look at what's so important about it. It says that the Dead Sea Scrolls now reside mainly in the Shrine of the Book, a part of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem where 
they are on display. The Copper Scroll can be seen in the Archaeological Museum of Ammon in Ammon, Jordan. Many of the small fragments are housed in the Rockefeller Museum in East Jerusalem. Many scholars work almost exclusively with photographs and microfilm of the fragments. However, and these are available to scholars at many of the major universities all around the world because of the microfilms. It is likely that researchers will still be at work on the scrolls even 50 years from now. What's the significance of the scrolls? That it was the oldest record of documents that they found that verified the Old Testament. And out of the Old Testament, they found thousands and thousands of scrolls that were years, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years older of, than any handwritten document that they had. <clears throat> they compared the writings of the Dead Sea Scroll with the 1611 King James Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, or the, the, the RSV or the ASV, and they found that it was 99.9% the same. And so the reliability of the New Testament and the Old Testament that we have has been buttressed and it has been validated by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one thing I might say that the only word that they found that had a variant between the oldest document, which was the Dead Sea Scroll, and what we have today is the word life. And they found that that, that word was exactly in congruence with the rest of the document. The next one we're going to talk about is called the House of David inscription. More than a quarter of a century of excavations at what's called the Tel Dan in the north uh, portion of Israel at the foot of Mount Hermon produced didn't really produce too much in the way of written material. The excavations have been directed through the years since 1966 by a gentleman named Dr. Abraham Bryan. He was a distinguished Israeli archaeologist. But in 1993, on July 21st, while work crews were preparing the site, were preparing the site you know, for many visitors to come, a broken fragment of basalt stone was uncovered in secondary use of the wall. A surveyor named Gilla Cook glanced at the stone in the rays of the afternoon sun and saw that it looked like in alphabetic letters. A closer examination, it turned out that indeed, they had found an inscribed stone. The discovery was of the fragment of a large monumental inscription measuring about 32 centimeters high and 22 centimeters wide at its greatest width. Apparently, the stone had been purposely broken in antiquity, but it turned out that the steel fragment mentions King David's dynasty, the House of David. As the preparatory work for the tourism proceeded, two additional fragments of the steel were recovered in two separate sites in two different locations in June of 1994. The partially reconstructed text reads, and I'm going to just give you a little part of it. My father went up against him when he fought at, and my father lay down and he went to his ancestors and the king of Israel entered previously in my father's land. And Hadad made the king and Hadad went in front of me and departed from the seven of my kingdom and slew 70 kings who harnessed thousands of chariots and thousands of horsemen and killed Jehoram, son of Ahab, the king of Israel, and killed Ahazahu, son of Jehoram, kin of the house of David, and set the towns into ruins and turned the land into desolation. 
over Jehoram left Israel and laid siege upon it. The pavement and the wall where the fragments were found was laid at the end of the ninth or the beginning of the eighth century. According to the pottery fragments recovered in what is called probus beneath the flagstone pavement, since the fragment and the entire pavement was covered by the debris of the Assyrian destruction at what's called the Tigla Plisser in 732 BC, it could not have been laid later than that year. So, you have to surmise that as Joash, who was in 798 and 783 grandson of Jehu, or Jehoshaphat's son, or Jehoboam, 793 to 782 to 753, and most likely Jehash was the monarch who had his remain who had this reminder of Aramean's domination smashed. You can read about this in 2 Kings 13 and 25. It is further assumed that Haziel was then king of Aram, Damascus, because Haziel fought against Jehoram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah. This is also found in 2 Kings 8th chapter, the 7th through the 15th verse, also in the 28th verse. And then lastly, in 2 Chronicles 22 and 5, Haziel was followed by his son and successor, Ben-Hadad III, early in the 8th century BC. The discovery provides an archaeological connection to the biblical references to the ruling, the ruling dynasties established by King David approximately two centuries before the events are mentioned in the inscription. It is the first mention of King David and the earliest mention of a biblical figure outside of the Bible. The discovery is of particular importance in the face of those scholars who were either skeptical or denied the historical existence of King David. Once again, archaeological finds confirm the truth of what God wrote in his word. And there's another finding which was called the Amulet Scroll, and that's A-M-U-L-E-T. And if you all would like to go back and, and research these your, on your own, you can listen to this podcast again and you can go and look at them. This is a scroll that in 1979, Israeli archaeologist Gabriel Barke was working with a group of students from the Institute of Holy Land Studies, now was called Jerusalem University College. And they ex- excavated several tombs in Jerusalem, the shoulder of Hinnon, on the southwest slope of the Hinnon Valley adjacent to the Scottish Presbyterian Church of St. Andrew. In one burial cave, a repository of grave goods were found containing approximately 700 items, including burial gifts of pottery vessels, over 100 pieces of silver jewelry and arrowheads, bone and ivory artifacts, alabaster vessels, and 150 beads and a rare early coin. Among the silver items was a rolled-up amulet bearing the Tetragrammaton, which is known as the name of God. It's the four consonants. It's the Yad Hiwahi, or Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name of God. The tomb dates to the end of the Davidic dynasty, approximately the 7th century B.C. The silver amulet thus dates to the end of the 7th of early 6th century. The prayer-like inscription containing the divine name provides the oldest extra-biblical evidence for the name of God thus far archaeologically recovered in Jerusalem. The scripture passage on the amulet is from the Aaronic or priestly blessings found in Numbers 6 
the 24th and the 25th verse. The owner apparently wore the inscribed roll-up silver amulet during his or her lifetime, and the people felt it appropriate that such objects should be accompanied by the owner until the death as his life. Of secondary interest is the fact that the evidence from the shoulder of Hinnom tombs indicates a population in the Jerusalem area in the aftermath of the Babylonian destruction of the city. The evidence also indicates a certain level of wealth on the part of those buried in the tombs. So once again, we find that the amulet scroll validates the the validity of God and his relationship with his people. Even his name was inscribed therein. And then there's what another uh, archaeological find is what is called the Galilee boat. And a severe drought took place in 1985 to 1986 through the Sea of Galilee to usually low levels and exposed large areas of the lake bed along the shoreline. It was two brothers, uh, Moshe and Yuval Lafond. And what they did, they were from an area called Kibbutz uh, Genesar near the Tiberias along the northwest shore of the sea. They discovered the remains of a 2,000-year-old boat buried in the mud along the shore. Israeli archaeologist Shelley Washman, an expert in marine archaeology, examined the sunken boat and Sutuan was able to confirm that it was an ancient rather than a modern craft. His judgment was based upon the construction technique used in antiquity in which the planks of the hull were edge-joined with mortise and tendon joints held together by wooden pegs. This was the first time an ancient boat had been discovered in the Sea of Galilee. Now, this boat measured about 30 feet long and 8 feet wide at its greatest width and was excavated in February of 1986. It was carefully moved from 1,600 yards to a specifically constructed conservation pool where it remained for several years, undergoing treatment for its preservation on the basis of the pottery fragments that were found in the boat. It has been dated between the latter part of the first century BC to approximately the mid-century AD. 17 pieces of pottery were used in the analysis, including a complete lamp, a cooking pot, as well as identifiable fragments of cooking pots, store jars, and a jug and juglets. The pottery was identified as part of the assemblage known from other Galilee excavation sites. In addition, they did carbon-14 dating, and it gave corroborating dates between 120 B.C. and A.D. 40. Hmm. That's within the window of when Jesus was living. Evidence was found that the boat could be both sailed and rowed. Apparently, the boat could be could also accommodate four oarsmen plus a helmsman. It is established that the boat could hold some 15 individuals similar to the boats which Jesus and his 12 disciples traveled across. And then you can read Matthew 8 and 18. You can also read Mark 4, 35 and Luke 6 and 1 and John 6 and 16. And it's going to give you a description of a boat that was exactly as the one that the two brothers found. And we're going to share also about what is called Barak Bula. It's another archaeological found. And what it, it was is literally hundreds of Hebrew seals and seal impressions were discovered uh, in the last century and a half, either in authorized archaeological excavations or just by 
you know, clandestine diggers, people who were just going out. And the results of the latter ending up in the hands of antiquities dealers, subsequently to come into the hands of collectors or scholars, hardened clay seal impressions are called boule or bula. Bula, they've survived in damp earth in a remarkable way. In biblical Israel, papyrus was a primary form of writing material. Once an official document was written, it would be rolled up, one end folded in, then one-third of the breath and the opposite end similarly folded in. The document, now shortened by folding, was tied into with a string and a lump of clay was impressed on the knotted string. When the upper surface of the clay was impressed with the signet ring of the owner of the document or the writer, such documents were stored in temple or palace archives with the unbroken seal guaranteeing the validity of the document contents. The reason for the clay bula survived is that a a conflagration that destroyed the building in the papyrus archives fired the clay ceilings, making them practically indestructible. The evidence of the knotted uh, coined in or the cord to which the clay had been attached remains in what is called the underside of the bula. Sometime during 1970, a bula containing the sharp name of the scribe of Jeremiah appeared in the antiquities market and was acquired by a collector named Dr. Hecht. He permitted the Israeli archaeologist Naaman Avagad to publish the bula which came from the unidentified place, but he he now thought that he had a burnt house excavated by who was known as Yugal Shalah. The bula is now in the Israel Museum. It measures 17 by 16 millimeters and is stamped with the oval seal 13 by 11 millimeters. A single line borders the impression and it was divided by double horizontal lines into three registers bearing the following inscription. Belonging to... Berekeah, son of Nera, the scribe. And Avagad also published a seal bearing the inscription belonging to Seria Neria. Seria was a chief chamberlain in the court of King Zedekiah, which is also found in Jeremiah 51 and 59. He accompanied the king to Babylon and he carried a written oracle from the prophet Jeremiah looking for the ultimate destruction of Babylon, which he, which was to be read aloud on his arrival in the city, then to throw the document into the Euphrates River. That's also found in Jeremiah 59 and 64. Sariah ben Nerah was the brother of Barak ben Neriah, and both were cro- close friends of the prophet Jeremiah. So here we find within this archaeological find that the prophet Jeremiah and all the things that he had wrote and prophesied that he was an actual historical figure and that his friends uh, Serian bin Neriah and Barak bin Neriah were close friends of this prophet and this particular archaeological find this bula verified that Jeremiah was indeed a historical figure just like the Bible said so. In the next archaeological find that we're going to uh, discuss in this Truth Matters podcast is what's called the Ossuary of Caiaphas. And the Ossuary of Caiaphas is a dump truck. This what, ha- what actually happened is a dump truck accidentally smashed through the roof of a tomb back 
in November of 1990 during some work in a Jerusalem Peace Force leading to the discovery of an ossuary which contained the bones of the high priest in the time of Jesus. I'm sure that you all, if you've ever read your Bibles or if you've seen any movies about Jesus Christ, the Passion of the Christ, one of the priests was Caiaphas. And the Jerusalem Peace Force is located in the southwest side of Old Jerusalem across the Hinnon Valley from Mount Zion. Here on the slope of the hills is a large cemetery from the late Second Temple era, around the first century BC to the first century AD. Rock-cut burial chambers used by Jews in this period contain typically four burial niches. Shelves cut into the sides of the chamber. Ossuaries are also characteristic of the unique, and they're very unique to that particular time period. Now, I think it must be stated, and it's very important, that the ossuary is a stone bone box used for secondary bones. Initially, the body is laid to rest in a burial niche. After decomposition, the bones were then collected and placed in an ossuary, marking the burial niche available for the subsequent burial. Tombs belonged to families, so subsequent burials were normal. Two of a dozen ossuaries in the tomb contained uh, you know, a form of the name, what is called Kafa to Caiaphas. Several of the ossuaries were decorated with traditional carved rosettes, zigzag patterns, and other designs. But most intricately carved ossuaries were decorated with two circles, each containing five rosettes, and twice carved into the undecorated side appears the name Yehoshef Bar Kafa, Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. The ossuary contained the remains of six people, two infants, a child aged from two to five years old, and a boy who was 13 to 18, an adult female and a man about 60 years old. The latter are believed to be the bones of Caiaphas, before whom Jesus was brought for questioning. The Bible records it in Matthew 26 and 3, Luke 3 and 2. John 11 and 49, and then Acts 4 and 6. So once again, archaeology has confirmed that the persons and the places that the Bible described were confirmed in history. And we're going to just go through uh, one more uh, before we actually end our our podcast for the day, we're going to actually look at what is called the Pontius Pilate inscription. Now, this Pontius Pilate inscription, and I'm sure you have heard of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of Roman Judea, under whose governance Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. You can read about that in Matthew 27 and 2, plus 60 additional occurrences in the Gospels of Acts and 1 Timothy. He was appointed by the emperor Tiberius in AD 26 and suspended by L. Vitellius, Roman governor of Syria in AD 37 after slaughtering a number of Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. Although Pilate is also mentioned in Josephus, Philo, and Tacitus and coins issued during the governance exists, inscriptional evidence for Pilate was discovered in Italian excavations at what is called Caesarea 
uh, Maritima in 1961. Antonio Frover, director of the excavations, found a, dicto- a, dicto- a dictorial stone that bore three line inscription. This is what it said. It says Tiberium Pontius Pilatus Praefectus Ludaeta Tiberius, the Roman Imperial of the period, Pontius Pilate, perfect of Judea. The stone in secondary use in the theater of Caesarea had been shaped to fit its new use and in the process, some of the inscription had been mutilated. Although it was easily reconstructed, the inscription not only confirms the historicity of Pilate, it clarifies the title that he bore as governor. It is now on display in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So today we uh, have gone over some of the excavations that have validated the truth of God's word and has affirmed the validity and the reliability of scripture. And we will continue in our internal evidence tests and then we will uh, complete our entire uh, exposition on inerrancy of scripture with the external evidence test and upcoming podcasts. But today, before we actually end our podcast, we want to just stop and let you all know that we're just very excited about the fact that you have joined and you've taken time. And if you would just allow this to be your time where you're going to actually sit down and be attentive and sort of go to school again and and, and learn some things that will help you in your efforts to evangelize and to share your faith. We don't ever need to sit back and 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 cower when someone stands up and says, well, the Bible isn't true. And how do you just have faith in something that isn't accurate? And one thing that I do know is that the Bible isn't just one book. It's 66 books that was written by over 40 people over several, over 14 generations. And it's poor men. There were kings. There were Gentiles. There were Jews. It's 66 books who have an amazing continuity that they all testify about a very consistent figure and theme, and that is God and his redemptive work. He manifests Jesus Christ in the flesh, God coming down in human form in the incarnation and dying for the ungodly and bringing eternal life to this world. All 66 books They give testimony and they lend testimony and credence to that great fact. So we thank God for you joining our Truth Matters podcast today. And I want to just say this to you. Some things in life, they are priorities. We have to maintain priorities. And then there are other things in life that don't really matter at all. But one thing that always matters, and that is the truth. Truth always matters. God bless you until we come together again.